Hello Def Leppard mates and welcome to episode 47 of Def Leppard, the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast and we have another album review two-parter for you. Joining me for this part one of our High and Dry review, High and Dry of course being Def Leppard's second album, are Andy Gibbons and Ben Moore. So without further ado, let's go. Ben, Andy, thank you very much both for coming on to Def Leppard again to talk about High and Dry. So we're going to crack on straight away and we're going to open with a question for you as we do with the majority of episodes. So High and Dry is an old album indeed. In 2023, it's going to be 42 years old. Now, a lot can change in that time with how an album is perceived. So Andy... What's the ebb and flow of your relationship with this album being like over the years? I got into the band in 87 with Hysteria, so that was that was the sound that attracted me to them. So I went backwards in sort of chronological order, if you like. I had Pyromania for Christmas that year, 87, and I remember I got High and Dry for my birthday the year after. And when I got back to High and Dry, I couldn't really relate to it. And I think that's because the sound was so much more different than what I was used to hearing with Hysteria, with all the polish and all the gloss. And it really took me a while to, to kind of get into it. And I think, although I listened to it a lot, I don't really think it was until I started hearing the songs live, seeing the songs live, that I started to appreciate it a bit more. I mean, certainly going to Don Valley, I think you were there for that, Neil, and hearing another hit and run for the first time live was just an unbelievable sort of experience because you know we got no setless spoilers so that got me digging the album out again but as time went on and I started collecting live bootlegs from all the different eras from from all the old uh, shows from high and dry all the way through it started to it started to sort of uh, register with me a bit more and I think by the time we got to slang slang was the perfect era for high and dry material I thought because it was just so so raw and as a side note, I think that brought every every song to life because it offered something different. But then I really started to appreciate it. And they started to push it live more. But I think looking back, I think I t- took the album for granted in a way because although it's full of really good songs, they almost passed me by because I was waiting to get to the Paramania stuff, the Asteria stuff or the, the Newman material because I couldn't really relate mm. to it still. But, but then I think I began to realise as more and more new albums have been coming out, that High and Dry is a really unique album in the catalogue in terms of its writing and all of its styles that are on there and all the different sort of song, um, the construction of them. So, I mean, we could expand on that later. So I think now when I look back, I really appreciate the quality of what they achieve with that. And the reality is it's something that they'll never, ever repeat because Steve and Pete aren't there anymore. And now I think I rank it really high, probably top five, I would say, out of all their albums. Was this similar for you, Ben, in terms of it's an album that it took you a few years to get into or for it to grow, or has it been a, a high album in your ranking right from day one? Well, it's a bit more of a special album for me because it, it was the first one that I bought myself with my own money in terms of the Death Leopard albums. Um, 
you know, the way I got into it, my dad had Volt and then my brother got into Def Leppard more and he bought Hysteria, Pyromania, Adrenalize. And it was when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I got high and dry. And I remember, you know, going into record stores and you'd also have a look and see, oh, what, what kind of Def Leppard do they have? Because a lot of stores we went to never had that much. And I, I still remember seeing the store in my head. I can't remember where it was. But we're out somewhere and it's, oh, they've got high and dry. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to buy this. And I knew of some of the songs on it, obviously, Bring On The Heartbreak. And uh, we borrowed the Historia video off a mate of ours. And I fell in love with the me, me and My Wine video. And so the, the CD I actually got was the, the, the kind of a remaster with the remixes on at the end. So Me and My Wine was always a favourite. It was a perfect album at that time for me, kind of getting into the teenage years and wanting something a bit more heavy. I was maybe listening to Rage Against the Machine at the time as well. So going, being able to have Def Leppard give me that sort of bit more hard rock energy was, was really good for me at that time. And um, yeah, I think over the years, it's always been that one I've went back to uh, where it's like, oh, I just, you know, I want something a bit more heavy. I want, I want something a bit more harder edged. And I think that's the great thing about Def Leppard is that they have those albums. So you want a bit more pop, you obviously go hysteria or adrenalized you want something a bit harder you can go back to high and dry so it's always been there for me like that oddly enough i wouldn't really go back to listen to the album and think oh, i want to listen to that particular song it's always been an album thing for me you know i, I used to like just stick it on in the car and hearing it all together um yeah i, I totally agree it's a, it's a different sound and it's not it's not one i immediately associate with Def Leppard, but it is something i i do get drawn to every now and then so it's got an important, quite an important part in my life with that. Just to pick up on something that Ben said, Andy, was your first experience of songs from High and Dry, not High and Dry itself, but in a similar vein, was it, for example, the Historia video or the In the Round in Your Face video? Is that where your first exposure to these High and Dry songs came from, or were you just straight into the album as soon as you'd heard Hysteria? No, no, my first experience of hearing anything from High and Dry was the Friday Rock Show. Um, okay. Because if you remember back then, that was the only, the Saturday Rock Show and the Friday Rock Show were the only couple of hours that you got to hear rock music on the radio. And Def Leppard, as, as we can both attest to at that time in 87, were massive all over BBC. And that was when they started playing Bring It On The Heartbreak or Lady Strange, I remember being played. And it was really difficult to for me to, put them in the same bracket as being the same band and I think it was only until I got the album that you can sort of really get into it and dig into the meat of that album. It's interesting what you say there Ben as well about like seeing it as a, as an album because it's a very cohesive sounding album and in a way I think the fact that it's so cohesive is why it took me a little bit of time to really grow to love it as I said to Andy the other day I've always liked it but it took me years to love it and I think my criticism of it over the years, which I don't think anymore, is that it was a little bit samey. It was just some of the songs just mm. sounded sonically just a little bit all on like the same level. But I suppose one person's sameness is is like what you're saying, Ben, is a sort of a cohesive sound where you judge it as an album. So let's provide some high and dry background for you. It's Def Leppard's second album. It was released on the 6th of July, 1981, being recorded March to June, 1981. 
Early writing sessions and rehearsals took place in a paper warehouse, no less. That's not a warehouse made of paper, but one where paper was stored and attached to it was a factory. And this was provided by the very same company that drummer Rick Allen's mum worked for. Free rent was provided in return for a couple of gigs at the owner's other business interests. The lineup for Hindright is the same as it was for Def Leppard's debut album, On Through the Night. On vocals, we've got Joe Elliott. On drums, Rick Allen. On guitars, Pete Willis and Steve Steeman Clark. And on bass, Rick Sav Savage, everyone's favourite Sav. One new addition, however, was producer Robert John Mutt Lang, a producer so sought after that the band had delayed recording the album by six months so they could obtain his services. Now, it's well documented that Mutt Lang bought with him and delivered a more polished and commercial sound and a focus on honing songwriting, having previously, for example, worked with ACDC, on their Highway to Hell and Back in Black albums at this point in 1981. In terms of chart position, High and Dry reaches 26 in the UK album charts and 38 in the Billboard 200. The album was reissued on the 31st of May 1984 on the back of the success of the Pyromania album in 1983 and features remixed versions of Bringing on the Heartbreak and the High and Dry B-side called Me and My Wine. Finally, although not a great commercial success at the time, it was and continues to be a critically acclaimed album and for a section of Leopard and Rock fans remains the band's high point, still containing that more raw and harder edge. So talking of the album, let's go through it track by track. So the opening song is Let It Go. Written by Pete Willis, Steve Clark, and Joe Elliott. It was also the debut single from it. It was released on the 14th of August, 1981. It's normally at this point I mention a chart place, but I can't find a chart place for it, which says to me I don't think it charted particularly um, well. So uh, that doesn't matter, though. The charts aren't everything. The one thing that I wanted to, 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 in a way, to start off talking about Let It Go is, and I'll come to you first, Andy, is... Outside of bringing on the heartbreak and switch six two five, let it go is the song from High and Dry that is still played live most today, and indeed last year on the stadium tour in two thousand and twenty two in the states it wasn't in the set list, but about six or seven or eight shows in it was brought in to replace a song from Darkness Star Halos Fire It Up. You would assume with the thinking that this would enhance and improve the set list. So I suppose my question to you about Let It Go is, what is it that this song's got going for it? It's sort of become a live standard, I think, over the last 20 years, probably, which is quite strange, really, because although they played it regular on High Drive Tour Pyromania, it got dropped during the Asteria Tour and wasn't played as often. Adrenalized Tour, it was totally binned off. Slang Tour, they didn't play it at all either. They then bought it back for the Euphoria tour. And pretty much from there, it's been a staple of every single live show. It's been an opener. It's been in the encores. 
And I think it's become that sort of anthemic, anthemic sort of hard rock moment. And it's an easy win from the back catalogue. You know, they're not going to dig out a You Got Me Running or an Overture. Mm-hmm. And I think Let It Go is just instantly recognisable. It's powerful. And it just gets the crowd up and gets them going. And I think that's a big reason why it stayed in the set for so long. Ben, have you, have you ever heard the song that Let It Go was born from? Have you heard the Live in Oxford 1980? There's a song called When the Rain Falls. Yeah, and uh, it's good you mention that because I think Let It Go is the example of what what maybe Mutt brought to this album with the band, just the idea of, of tightening things up, doing a bit of quality control on it because if you just think about the elements of the song, the different sections, the riffs and everything in there, it's it's incredible from that standpoint alone. And I think what Mud does when you when you compare Let It Go to When the Rain Falls, just really tightens it up, makes it a lot more a lot more accessible without compromise. I think that's what a quote we used to kind of describe what he did with, with ACDC as well. And I think Let It Go just really sets sets the album up like that. I mean guitar wise it's it's just it it's such a such a great riff to open it up. I can see why you know they would they'd start start tours with it, start setlists with it. Um, I mean, me personally, I've never, I, I've always thought there's there's better songs on the album, and if I was listening to the album as a fool, I have been known to kind of skip the first couple of tracks, which is maybe a bit sacrilege. But for me as well, you know, the the kind of ACDC comparisons we might be making to the album, it, it's funny because I'm not particularly a fan of ACDC yet this kind of sonic blueprint that Def Leppard has with his album really resonates with me. And I don't know why why that is, but I think there's a little bit more and you can really see that on Let It Go, like the, the kind of bridge section with the, the cool woman, cool eyes kind of uh, lyric point. It's a great kind of contrast to the rest of the song. And I think that's what Def Leppard has on this album that maybe other bands at that time didn't didn't have. Um, so yeah, so I think I think it's an example of like you say, Mutt kind of clean that up, letting them have their moments of the great riffs, the great sections, but making it in a more more kind of accessible song. So Andy, you just heard Ben uh, saying that sometimes he skips it. Is it a song that you skip, or are you about to take your shoes off and throw them at Ben? Never, I, I never. Let it go is probably one of the favourites of the entire album. I don't skip it, and I thought I knew Ben quite well. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what he says there is is exactly exactly right because when you compare the two of them, the lyrics for "When the Rain Falls" are, are pretty shit, really, in comparison to what uh, to what he ended up coming up with for it. Even though they're a bit ropey, but that whole ACDC thing that's that's prevalent through the album, I think, is the the typical Mutt Lang trick of making the song breathe. It's easy to get into anthemic rock like that when it's you've got the lyrics separated from the from the guitars. It's just more punchy, and the the atmosphere that he's got with this what Mutt got with the song, you know, the slow building choruses with the, with the little guitars in the background, which gradually get louder and louder even into the second chorus, and also the the structure of this. Whilst it's very ACDC sounding production wise to say Back in Black or uh, For Those About to Rock, 
when I mentioned earlier, sort of in the opening sort of comments, the structure of this song is very different to anything that they do these days at all. Because when you break it down, you look at the amount of, I think you've got three verses, two solos, breakdowns all through it. It, it just stands apart, I think, from the material since that, that era. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sonically and maybe riff-wise, it sounds like ACDC, but ACDC are never having that bit that Ben's just referred to, that, you know, the cool woman, you know, that, that bit. Interestingly as well, I think Joe said, and you referred to the subject matter of this song. So for anyone who doesn't know what the subject matter of this song is, if you just dig through the Def Leppard episode um, history, we go, we go into it and we talk about what it is, but just to sort of and make you listen to another episode. Uh, we're not going to tell you what it is now, but it's um, it's it's about special hugs. Let's just put it that way. Okay, right. So Joe actually says that Mutt wanted him to sort of create a character in on this album and certainly on some of the songs in which he's uh, he's essentially his words where he wanted me to be a bit of a be a drinking bastard. And <laughs> I think you definitely get that. And that's why Let It Go turns into what it is from a song which in, in When the Rain Falls is about an 18-year-old lad looking out the window and seeing that it's raining and thinking, no, this isn't great. So you can definitely see um, how that in, how the influence of Mutt in terms of subject matter came around. Talking of subject matter, we'll go to the next song, which is another hit and run written by Sav and Joe. Lyrically, it's possibly Def Leppard's first sort of political song talking about the state of the UK at the beginning of it with um, Union Jack with a hole in his head and all of that. Funny when whenever I listen to these these podcasts and I hear you know yourself or, or Paul kind of talk about um, the lyric content, I'm like, oh Jesus, that that was about it. Just completely goes over my head. I've never, I've never really been able to, to zone in on the lyrical content, especially with Def Leppard. I guess for me, yeah, it's just all about the the kind of music and the way the syllables sound. So I can't comment much on on the lyrical content. It does sound cool. I mean, I do love the the. Union Jack is backline. I think that's sounds great. I don't know. I don't know what, what it is about that specifically, but music wise, I always like to try and and uh, elevate my appreciation of like uh, Sav's songwriting. I think in recent years he's maybe been a little bit, a little bit pigeonholed with the kind of Queen sound and stuff. But um, I mean, if you take the songwriting credits as they are here, you, you might have to assume that you know he came up with with the music and. Um, even though there's some kind of Steve Clark sounding chords, you guess that maybe Sav had a little bit of influence there from Steve or he had that in him in, in himself. Um, the main thing that kind of strikes me about this song is that it's really great in terms of dynamics. You know, the idea of, of having that really punchy intro, laying it back into that kind of quiet section. Again, I think that's something that might help bring in and the idea of, well, if you want something to sound big, you can't just keep turning things up to make it sound big. Make the little section before that sound a little bit quiet and it really jumps back in. And I think that's that's always the main thing for me with this song, when they have the, the little clean breaks, like just after the intro and then, and then the bridge after the solo, it really makes what comes afterwards kind of punch.
and I think it's a great track, and I'm, I'm jealous you guys got to hear that live. You know, that must have been something to hear, especially the Don Valley show for sure. Well, let's go to hearing it live, Andy. You were there, Don Valley, 1993. I was there as well, but I'll be honest with you, I just the older I get, the less I can remember things. You look like a man who retains information to me. What was it like hearing another hit and run live at Don Valley? It took a moment to register what it was, because, you know, when you're not expecting something. And I think I turned to me to me mate, and I said, this is another hit and run. Fucking hell. And then you see on the video where everybody's hands are up and everybody's everybody's into it. And the one word that I'd written down for this that uh, Ben just touched on was dynamics. And those dynamics are absolutely perfect in a concert for when the quiet bit comes in and Joe can get the crowd going. And that's exactly what happened at, at Don Valley with it. And they also had a tendency to extend that quite a bit during the middle section as well, which was another crowd participation thing as well. It's a great song, great song, and really translates well live, I think. It's a pity that it's not played as often as it should be, certainly not in England anyway. I know it gets more play in America, it seems. And it does, it gets everyone going. And you, if you look now, like you just said then, and if you look at, you go on YouTube, it's probably your video actually, isn't it? If you go on YouTube and you look it at is. the Don Valley show and you see the bit where, where they play another hit and run at the beginning when it first kicks in and it's the whole crowd in unison got the, you know, got the hands and the clapping and at the risk of sounding like an old man shouting at the clouds here, not a mobile phone in sight, but I won't go any further uh, on that. And in fact, it's actually that bit of the Don Valley clip, or that's one of the Don Valley clips that they then actually use in um, the action video, which is a montage of different things, isn't it? Including Don Valley. And I would expect that anyone, if it, you gave anyone 10 guesses about what song was being played when 40, 50,000 people were clapping in unison and it looked amazing, I would imagine no one would say um, another hit and run. So it shows even mm. if there was loads of people there who didn't know another hit and run, which I'm, I imagine there would have been quite a few people who didn't know that. You know, they just know adrenaline and hysteria. That a song being heard for the first time by, I would say, at least half of those people there can have that sort of effect and get it going. So it shows what um, a cool song it is. It just shows that the power of rock music, that, that it's not a track that's it's not an instantly recognisable song to the casual fan. But the fact that all the crowd were going for that just shows you the power of just a simple riff and a simple drum beat and a good singer getting the crowd going. And that's why that's why the song translates well live. And one other thing you mentioned about Sav's songwriting there is that I remember reading Joe describing Sav's writing as being strange. And I think he used stage fright in this song as a, as a good example. And it is strange because I don't think they've, they've done anything like this since. It's, it's a song that easily stands on its own because it's such a weird it's a weird structure weird dynamics different subject matter for him and one thing i wanted to ask ben about it as well is that when we were talking about the little bits and bobs that steve and pete added there's a at the start of the very first uh, guitar solo straight after the second chorus there's a little steve lick when joe uh, screams into the court into the solo sorry and one of the good things about this is that steve clark used to change up the solo live all the time and I remember a good friend of ours, Hurricane Joe, who's not with us anymore. He used to constantly email me asking for every single version of another hit and run from every show going. 
because the amount of times Steve used to change it up. And I love that section of the song. And I just want to know for Ben, what's it like to play? I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've actually ever played that bit whenever I've, whenever oh. I've covered it or anything. I think there's a couple <laughs> of ways you can do it. But yeah, I remember Joel, Joel leaving a couple of comments about, oh, I was like, oh, you missed that out. You know, I want to see how you did it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great it's a great little section. It is one of those where it's, oh, yeah, you know, you can imagine hearing Eddie Van Halen for the first time. It's it's one of those sounding things. I mean, actually, I've got um I've got the infamous high and dry and pyromania tab book. And their their explanation of how to do that is something to do with um oh it's played and then the tapes like sped up. And since half that book's wrong anyway, I don't I don't believe that at all. But uh, that that may be one way to do it. But yeah, Steve used to kind of vary that a bit live, which was cool. Um I've got another thing about the extended bit they used to do, especially on the, the Pyromania tour. A little bit where they go in and Joe's like, you know, are you out there? And they go into that little riff. That sounds like the little section that they might put into Don't Shoot Shotgun before that main solo comes in. playing the same sort of riffs in there. So I don't know if that's maybe something they used to jam and that became that little section of Don't Shoot Shotgun. But I've always thought, oh, that, that sounds a little bit familiar. Maybe that's where that came from, from the extended portion of uh, another hit and run. Before we hmm. move on, I've got to say two lyrical things quickly. Firstly, you said you, you weren't too sure why you liked um, the Union Jack and back bit, Ben. Okay, I can tell you why. It's due to something called assonance, which is a repetition of a vowel sound. Which so you remember when you were at school and you did poetry and you learned about alliteration? It'd be like yeah. the, the repetition of like you know like a T or you know an S or whatever. Okay, well the same thing with vowels happens. Um, it's called assonance, and it's a, it's pleasing to the human ear. So that that's what that is, I reckon. And then secondly, one thing I, I would mention because you know. We've got to get one. We've got to get two swear words in at least, I would say, you know, in a in a rock podcast. Is this has got the most British bit of any Def Leppard song in it. When they say you hit me or kick me when I'm down, you just really quietly, Joe going, bastards. And I think that's the most northern and northern British thing that Def Leppard have ever done. And I applaud them for it as a northerner. I think that's why I also like the end of Back in Your Face. I, I listened to it all back in your face just for that end portion, you know, and the thing is for that, that word, what was it? Uh, Assonance. Yeah, assonance, repetition of a vowel sound. So that has to be it, yeah. It's, vowel sounds are also why swear words sound amazing. But, um, think about it, all of the four-letter words, they've all got that same sort of, like, shortness to them. Anyway, I just need to stop, okay? Right, everyone's turned off. Let's get on to High and Dry, song number three, written by Clark Savage Elliot. Right, okay. Ben had his little confession in the confession booth earlier about um, Let It Go. He'd never really been a massive fan of High and Dry in brackets Saturday night. Andy, tell me why I'm wrong. I don't think you're too far wrong. And it pains me to say, as, much, as brilliant as side one is, I think this is probably one of the weaker songs on the album. I think you, put, you might be right. It's got a typical, again, it's like another typical sort of ACDC kind of boozy down the pub style track. 
you know, the lyrical content, the, the guitar riffs, the big sing-along chorus. And when you put all that together, it should be a bit of a winner. But I think it's, it might sound a bit strange to say, but it, it, it seems a little bit more raw than the previous two tracks that have come before it. And I, and I struggled to get into it after those two. And I think it's one of the few tracks where they've had it um, flagged by the PMRC for the, for the lyrical content. I guess that's about getting high and getting leathered. It's probably one of the average ones on the album for me too. But I've never seen it live. I'd love to see see, see it play live. Right about to be on that list. I think it was like Tipper Gore, wasn't it? Al Gore's wife um, back in the eighties. Mm. But but have you seen what else is on the list? Because if you compare High and Dry to the other stuff, that's I mean, there's <laughs> stuff on there where I can go. Do you know what? <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> I can see why some of that's on there. But as far as I can tell, High and Dry is nothing other than just the reference to High. It's like it's like it's like the famous um, Doors thing, isn't it? When he, um, Jim Morrison said Hi when he was on the um, Ed Sullivan show, and it was a big thing. I think there's something about that word in the States. If you're listening in the States, let me know. Why is that word such a taboo word? Because it's not something that really registers over here in the UK um, and Ireland. And um, Ben, are me and Andy both wrong? Completely. <laughs> no, it's funny. When when you say it like that, it, it makes sense. I mean, and doing a bit of reading on, on, on the song, it does seem as though, yeah, that might have been an afterthought brought in you know, Mark saying, I want a highway to hell type of song, something like that. But I, I do like how, how even though we, you know, we said about the album being very cohesive, for me, this is the first one that maybe breaks it up a little bit. You know, it's a bit more kind of spacey, the idea of the bass not coming in for a little while, you know, the kind of staccato style riff or, um, you know, pops in and out. Yeah, it does feel a little bit maybe lazy with, with the with the chorus idea and the way the guitars go, it doesn't really feel as riffy as the previous two songs, maybe a bit more poppy, if that can be a thing on high and dry. Um, but I, I, I really love the solo on this. I think this is Pete Willis's best solo. Um, I'm pretty sure it's him doing it. I just think it's compared to all of his other solos being a little bit energetic and a little bit over the top. I think this is a bit more restrained and um, a bit more musically pleasing to listen to. So it's it's always been one I've I've enjoyed listening to and, and trying to play along. But I can, I can certainly see yeah your your points on on it maybe not being especially compared to the rest of side one. Yeah, this is this is probably the weaker song on that. This actually reminds me of well, sorry newer songs that remind me of this. You mentioned don't shoot shotgun. I think the idea there of the riffs, uh, you know, whoever starts the riff first. I think it was Steve live and then Phil will come in. It reminds me of high and dry how that starts. And also later on on X Four, like a word reminds me a bit of high and dry as well. Mm. How that's sort of sung and played. I think they 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 sort of come from high and dry as well. What's interesting that it's interesting that you, independent of me, have made that comparison to those songs because I know I know I hear lots and lots of people's opinions, and I know the one that everyone says on X that like so even if people really dislike X, lots and lots of people say. The um, like four letter word. That's a song I've never really got, and I don't know if it's because people big it up because it's on X, so therefore, you know, in its frame of reference, it's it's better than a lot of the other songs. But I've never really felt that totally. 
and don't shoot shotgun for me is is it's still brilliant it's still brilliant don't hate me right but it's my least favorite song on hysteria as well so maybe i've just got a problem with uh that type of song uh, but anyway i know a lot of people listening to this will love um high and dry saturday night so it's fine we can all like different um things i, I actually used to have can i just add there one little tiny thing i used to have i stumbled across a, a demo tape well not really a demo tape i think it was like a a daily that m- must have ran off and somebody was selling it on ebay and I, I remember getting a copy of it so there was there was about half of the album on there and high and dry was on there there was no lyrics for the um verses but the chorus was on there and the chorus was all switched around they sung it in a different order and that, that was strange to hear, having been used to, to the standard one for so long. But typically, I lost the thing in a hard drive crash, so I don't have it anymore. So I'm gutted. Man. And the only copy I had, I actually gave to Joe when I saw him play at the Down and Out. So I, don't, I, didn't even, I didn't even have a hard copy. What an idiot. Do you think High and Dry, there was an intention for High and Dry to be a single at some point? Because on a Historia video, They've got three videos which are all at the same venue. It's actually not a million miles from me. It's the Royal Court in Liverpool. So you've got them playing Let It Go. You've got them playing High and Dry. And you've got them playing Bringing On A Heartbreak, which we'll come to in a minute. So obviously, Let It Go and Bringing On A Heartbreak become singles. High and Dry doesn't. Do you think the intention was for it to be a single? I I think so. My last note here says I'm surprised it wasn't a single. But that video was... We know that Bringing On The Heartbreak was played regularly on MTV, but also the other videos were as well, because I've got quite a few compilation DVDs where they're taken from American TV and they played two or three of them out of that, that batch together. So I'm surprised it wasn't. Yeah, I've always associated but, videos being made. Oh, that must have been that must have been popular. Must have, should have been a single or something like that. Well, then that leads leads a little bit nicely into the life of the album, the length of the album, because really it's quite a short-lived time period of July 81, the album coming out, to the tour ending in December. It's only five months. It's almost like it came out and died a death straight away. And I wonder if maybe things had carried on a bit longer, if it would have come out later. Okay, so next up, track four on side one of High and Dry is Bringing On The Heartbreak, written by Steve Clark, Joe Elliott, and Pete Willis released in America on the 13th of November 1981. A remix version of it was released in May 1984. We'll come back to that in a minute. I know Andy has strong feelings about that remix, but Ben, I'll come to you first. This is arguably Def Leppard's first ever ballad, their first ever big love song. In terms of it being a ballad, have they ever bettered this? Oh, Neil, that's tough, man. That's tough. Um, I mean, it's an absolute masterpiece. And what I always like to try and remind myself with this with this album and this era is trying to think of just how young all the guys were and how accomplished this songwriting is. And for me, this is the first song which has elements that we, I think we, we all say what we came to like about Def Leppard in terms of the interest in guitar, the dynamics, the big backing vocals, the big choruses. It just seems to be the first one that ticks all the boxes in that. And even in terms of like weird little recording techniques and little hidden details in which which I'll get to. But um, for me, I, when I was listening back to it, I was, I was listening to the album on, on some proper cool monitors. And it is a very mature, mature song for their age. And obviously, Muck could have helped with that. But one thing I like, I want to point out is with the chorus this is quite sophisticated in terms of writing and recording is that 
again, it's a chorus. It's big. It's massive. The guitars are just playing single notes. You'd expect in a big, massive power ballad that they'd be wailing away, be big, massive power chords. But no, they're not. They're just playing single notes. And that's so that everything else can fit in there. We've got massive backing vocals. If everything was to go full on heavy, it'd all be muddy and wish-washy. So I think that's the first example of Mutt and the band kind of tailoring their sound more so for the end product of, of making everything sound great together. Absolute masterpiece. And the little tidbit information I have is um, at the start of the song, maybe people have, have noticed, you can kind of hear a faint voice in the background just before the verse first starts. Now, the multi-tracks of this song have, have been leaked. And if you listen to the isolated vocals, you can hear Mutt Lang say what I think is the out-of-tune ones, eh? Pete's ones. Out-of-tune ones, eh? Pete's ones. Gypsy, sitting looking pretty, a broken rose with laughing eyes. First, you might think, oh, Pete Willis, out of tune. What, was he playing something wrong? I don't believe so. Now, I have a quote from Steve from the High and Dry Pyromania songbook, and he says this about the guitars on Heartbreak. Um, he says, the actual sounds we got were through playing two guitars slightly out of tune with each other. It gave the sound a spacey chorus-like effect. So instead of using like a pedal or a piece of effects gear to get a chorus sound to make things wider and more thicker, they actually had their guitars slightly detuned with each other. And I think that's what Mutt's referring to, is that maybe Pete's guitar was the one that was out of tune compared to Steve, which creates that cool, cool sound. So there's a little recording technique thing that, you know, Def Leppard have become known for as well. And you know, on the other albums doing weird techniques. And there we go on, on High and Dry. There's one there. That is an excellent tidbit. And I'm also, I'm really, really happy that you've been able to provide the explanation around it. I didn't know that whatsoever. And my thought was, was, oh, poor Pete Willis again. You know, he gets he gets sacked uh, during the recording of Pyromania. There's the whole story of, like, you know, Morton, you know, you know sending them home because um, he's too drunk to play the solo. And it was breaking my heart, excuse the pun, it was breaking my heart that in this song, it's like secretly there's just Mutt Lang having a, like, having a go at Pete versus <laughs> not playing something in tune. So I, it, it fills my heart with joy that it's not that, and it's actually about a uh, musical effect. Andy, what are your thoughts and feelings on this song? Do you hate it? No, far from it. This is, this is probably the template for every single big song that they've done afterwards, I think. At the time when they were recording this album, they've, the band have said that Mutt recognised that this was going to be the breakthrough song and this is the one that he spent a lot more time on in the studio. And I think probably out of all of them, you can tell that when you look at all the little tricks. And you can't believe that it was called A Certain Heartache. Just try and fit that into the chorus somewhere. I just don't, it doesn't work at all, does it? But all the work that Mutt put into this paid off because, like as I said, it's it's almost a cut and paste template for everything that came since. It, it's the blueprint for for Def Leppard's success, and then this is the one that started it all. And although it didn't happen immediately, it did take a year to happen, and eventually, it gives you the building blocks to Pyromania. 
You mentioned that it was previously called uh, a certain heartache. I was just going to ask a question. This can go to either of you. I don't know the answer, so I'd just be interested to see what you think. Is that in this album, Mutt Lang doesn't have any songwriting credits at all, but he does in Pyromania. He's pretty, I think he's on every song um, in Pyromania as a songwriting credit. Yet we know that he did have an influence on songs. So, for example, you know, in this song, he changed the title in um, Let It Go, the first song that we discussed. You know, he was the one who suggested that the lyrics were changed, the title was changed, and as the story goes, that's the first song that they worked in. They worked on when he came in, and he was like, right, slow it down, speed it up, play it this way, play it that way. What is it, do you think, that sort of defines a songwriting credit? Is that sort of stuff not enough to get a songwriting credit? Or what does Mort Lang bring maybe in Pyromania that he doesn't in this? That means he ends up actually having a songwriting credit on each of the songs. I don't think it could be a, a cynical move. I mean, he, he probably would have had a right to say, oh, I deserve a songwriting credit on this. I've heard stories especially on like Michael Jackson's Thriller from people who who felt a bit peeved that they didn't get a writing credit for doing similar. But from what I've read about, especially this song in particular, you know, Mutt on Animal Instinct talking about this was a democratic song and, and they really reaped the benefits of it. He was maybe thinking, you know, I'm not going to go in full guns blazing demanding certain things. And the band have talked about, you know, it was a big learning curve for them, them on this album. And they then saw the rewards of it. So imagine if he comes in and says, I want this, 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 I want writing credits. There might be more of a of a kind of resistance from the band to do that. Maybe he might have thought I'll go in a bit easy, just suggest a few things. But next time, once they know I can do the job and make you sound even better, you need to let me in a little bit more. I'm give me more control, give me writing credits, and we can make something that's that's even bigger. I'd I'd hazard a guess it could be could be like that. What I would add to that is that I think that maybe by the time they got around to Pyromania, they realised how what works. And I think that they possibly went into the studio with a lot more bits and pieces of ideas that they almost put together like a jigsaw. And then what becomes an arranger as well, as well as helping them with certain ideas. I mean, bringing on the heartbreak is another good example of that because he helped them with the bridge, trying to get that work perfectly, getting that punchy and then leading into the typical sort of big chorus. So I think he just carried that on into Pyromania. I think the band recognised the value of his in, of his input as well and knew the way he was now going to be working. So they're bringing bits and pieces to the table instead of just full songs, which are going to be deconstructed anyway by Moss. And staying with you, Andy, then let's talk about this remix of Bringing on the Heartbreak that uh, released in 1984. And there's a video for that, isn't it, on the Historia, because it was released as a single um andy maybe can you tell us a little bit what that remix sounds like and then you know give us your opinion on that remix maybe get the sentiment of the remix in that they've had the success of pyromania phil's joined the band and they want to sort of carry on the sort of promotion of it all and maybe give high and dry a bit more of a push but one of the good things about pyromania which you touched on on die or the hunter was the fact that that's full of keyboards but they're quite subtle you don't really realise it because the orchestration is so good. But when you listen to the Bringing on the Heartbreak remix, the keyboards are practically slapping in the face. And I think it dilutes the song a little bit. It doesn't need that extra. This song would probably be perfect with a sort of a Michael Kamen orchestration kind of thing. And those keyboards are just a, they're just a weak version of it. So for me, they dilute it. I don't like them at all. What about you, Ben? Do you like the remix of Bringing on the Heartbreak? 
Not really, no. And ironically, I think it's an example of, you know, they talk about when they made On Through the Night, the album, how, you know, they, they had too much time, so they just overdubbed and overdubbed. It almost sounds like this. They thought, oh, well, we need to add something more. Oh, we'll just add some more kind of keyboard bits in. It's not needed at all. You know, like I said, they maybe beefed up the drums a little bit, which would have helped, but I think they should have just made another video with the same the same uh, back and track, you know, for the original. But are we going to touch upon Me and My Wine at all? Um, because that as well, I, I, I love the, the, the remix of Me and My Wine seems fine, apart from the intro with the toms, where usually you'd have a tom fill, which would go from high to low. But I, I don't know if there's a mistake in it or whatever, but that electronic tom sound is like the same tone all the way through panning. And that for me just completely ruins it. So it's like, it's a similar idea, I guess, of bringing on the heartbreak. It's, it's like, you know, they, they've, they've tried to maybe update it, but it just, it just doesn't work. On the subject of the drums there, I wonder if when they did Me and My Wine and the Bringing On The Heartbreak remix, if they totally redid the drums and used program drums, for want of a better phrase. Because Mutland's technique for ACDC and, and Death Leopard on High and Dry was he'd record the drums and then he'd, he'd whack them through a big PA in a room and record that. Whereas then technology moved on to Pyromania where he felt he could create a synthetic drum sound. And that's what the two remix versions sound like to me, like he's also messed with the drums. Yeah, it sounds, yep. it sounds as though the, the, the snare's a little bit beefed up, which is fine. It's not too, not too out there. But well, me and my wine especially is that that Tom's at the start, which really grates on my ears and sounds like the kind of Simmons kit or the, the sampler they were using for Pyromania for sure. I don't know if it's that obvious on bringing on the heartbreak, but I'm sure there's a little bit of beefing up going on with the electronics. So I think the good thing to say here is that we're talking about high and dry and we prefer the high and dry era me and my wine, which is obviously a B-side for anyone who's not come across that song, and we prefer the bringing on a heartbreak version that's on High and Dry, which, considering we're talking about this album, that that's good and works well. So, obviously, as High and Dry fades out, the next song fades in, and that's Switch 625. Written by Steve Clark, very much meant to be what Joe refers to as a coda, as in C-O-D-A, to bringing on the heartbreak. The songs very much were seen as a, a pair, and that's why they, they segue into each other in that way. We, we've touched on this before, Ben, but it, fe- it feels like as, as, the, uh, as the guitarist in the room, I should come to you first. This is obviously an instrumental. What else can we say about this song, really? I think, again, it's, it's a great, great example of Steve's musicianship because for me, although it's an instrumental, it's, it doesn't sound lo- as though it's just like a guitarist, quote unquote, wanking over a backing track. It, it's, it's got a bit more of a structure to it. It kind of, it builds up the idea of it's, it's kind of certain sections that weave into one and then they all come together and they work together and yeah, it's not just not just like a solo. Like you know, I mean, I, I don't really listen to a lot of instrumental guitar work from like Eric Johnson or Joe Satriani because that doesn't interest me. But Switch Six to Five keeps my interest because it is like a more so a piece of music, good good orchestration, and um, credit to Joe for persuading them not to put any vocals on or any kind of lead vocals because yeah, that 
kind of ruin it a little bit. But um, yeah, it's great. And it perfectly, perfectly um, falls after Bring On The Heartbreak. I think, I, I almost, like I say, I like listening to the album in full. I couldn't imagine just listening to Bring On The Heartbreak or just switch, switch, switch 625 on their own. They almost have to kind of go together. Yeah, I'll just echo that what Ben just said. These these should always be played together for me. These are like the the Zeppelin, Heartbreaker and Living Loving Made. They should always follow each other. And I think just jumping back one sector, bringing on the Heartbreak, the one thing that would probably make the In the Round in Your Face version of Heartbreak perfect is if Switch 625 followed it on that live concert. That would have been unbelievable. But, but now, sadly, as much as we love uh, Switch 625 and, and like Ben says, it's not a it's not a song where he's showing off. It's quite thematic, which keeps with Steve's style. Now it's just become synonymous as being a tribute for Steve, which is a shame, really. But, you know, it's, it's a great song in its own right. And it was also the, although they never played it on the Iron Drive tour, this was the intro tape for the tour. Oh, this it? is what they came on stage to. So they didn't play it, but they came on stage to it. Although allegedly on the first, when we go back to the rushing of the high and dry sessions, supposedly for the first show they were that late in um, working on Ben's favourite Me and My Wine Joe was virtually late to the show so the band started with Switch 625 live supposedly at the first show and I think that's the only plane of it on the High and Dry tour if that story's right from Joe well that's cool to make up the time and give them uh, give them three three minutes and three seconds and more to get onto <laughs> the stage my first time I ever heard that song was it's at the end of um, on not it's at the end of in the round in your face, isn't it? You know, where you see them packing away the stadium. And I never knew it was a Def Leppard song. I just thought it was a backing track. And I always used to think, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And then like a year or so later, when I bought High and Dry and it was on it, oh, I was chuffed. I was like really made up because I, I loved it so much. I, I remember something was on the, it was the Def Leppard SOL website. I don't know, Satellite of Love. Was there something called Sweet 625? Swing six two five. Swing six two five. Yeah, that's it. What what was that? You mean the the song, the, the other version of the song? Yeah. Nobody's ever heard it. But supposedly there's a there's a version knocking around called Swing Six Two Five, which I think is in Joe's garage. There was there was something on that website which had the audio clip. I must just be misremembering, but I was like, I'm, but yeah, that that makes sense if no one's heard it, and that's why maybe it hasn't resurfaced. But yeah, I remember reading that. Does anyone know why it's called Switch 625? You know, about a year ago on the Def Leppard Vault, they did like a live stream where it was all about um, high and dry. And Joe was asked on that. And he said that when they were doing a mock-up for the album art, um, someone, I don't know who exactly, you know, just had to like write down like a load of names of songs on the back. And he knew a few of them that were on there, but then there was some that never had titles. And he just put Switch 625 down apparently. And then he thought, yeah, that'll do. We'll have that. Joe definitely said something along those lines. If that's not right, it's because I haven't remembered it correctly. Um, I've as heard opposed that. to the I've fact that, that Joe is fibbing, but yeah, it's it's something to do with like a, a mock up of the um, album art. Okay, so we've come to the end of side one. You know what we do at this point, gentlemen? Okay, we're gonna pick the song from side one of this album that we would like to go on the Def Leppard ultimate Def Leppard playlist so this is a really difficult album to do it for yeah I see people moaning about this all of the time and you know they make more of a fuss of it than it needs to be I'm not pointing at anyone Paul and Kurt but it is you two um but this one is difficult I think this one's really difficult so 
And I think I know what you're both going to do. The question is, is do I allow it? Andy, I'm going to come to you first. What song would you pick from this side? You asked the question on the Pyromania part one, Is was Pyromania the best A-side the Def Leppard have ever done? That question could be applied to High and Dry as well, mm-hmm. because this yeah. is arguably in the top three with Asteria and Pyromania. Yeah. <laughs> Another Hit and Run is probably one of my favourite songs off the album. But I don't. Th- I think it would be absolutely impossible to ignore bringing on the heartbreak. So I'll say bringing on the heartbreak. Okay, Ben. Well, it just has to be high and dry. No, I'm joking. Yeah, it's 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 got to be bringing on the heartbreak for sure. It's just signature song, and yeah, side one, unbelievable. I think I think um, it was on the X tour they were playing side one on some shows, and you just think it just flows so well. Yeah, a really, a really great opening to an album. But bringing on the heartbreak stand out, even on its own, it's just an incredible song and certainly a highlight among highlights of, of, of that side. You said on its own, but you think, you know, it does segue into Switch 625, doesn't it? So do you think we just treat that as one song and put them both on there? I've yeah, never but... I, I've never had the experience of hearing it on a vinyl where it goes without a cut in the middle of the kind of bass. So I need, to, I need to experience that. I need to get a vinyl player or maybe just listen to a YouTube recording. I don't know. But I've never heard that that seamless transition. But yeah, they, they should go together. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, right. So we're gonna, I'm going to break my own rules. We'll put both of them on and pretend it's one song. <laughs> Fantastic. So there we go. That is part one, side one of High and Dry, done and dusted in a very satisfactory fashion. Make sure that you join Andy Ben and I again next week for part two of High and Dry. Mm-hmm.